This week on the show, we have Dragonfly BSD project updates with code upgrades, future trends, and others. Uh, we also cover resuming ZFS Send. We also have a real-time bandwidth terminal graph visualization for you. We also talk about how to fix Telnet fixes, a chapter on the FBI's history with OpenBSD and an OpenSSH vulnerability, and more in this week's episode of BSD Now. BSD Now, episode 309, Get Your Telnet Fix, recorded on the 31st of July, 2019. Hello, I'm your host, Nick And I'm Alan Jude. Welcome to this week's episode, everyone. Uh, we have great headlines, pretty much like always. Um, this time, it's Dragonfly BSD project updates. They have uh, colo upgrades for us and future trends. So this is the uh, post from Matthew Dillon on the Dragonfly BSD mailing list. Writing that for the last week, I've been testing out a replacement for Monster, our 48-core Opteron server. The project will be removing Monster from the colo in a week uh, or two and replacing it with three machines, which together will use half the power that Monster did alone. Ah, okay. So the goal here is to clear out the little power budget in the colo and to really beef up our package building capabilities to reduce the turnaround time needed to test ports, syncs, and updates to the binary package system. Currently, they write, we use uh, two blades to do most of the building and plus monster sometimes. The blades take almost a week, like 120 plus hours, to do a full synth run and monster takes around 27.5 hours. But we need to do these three bulk builds more or less at the same time. Uh, one for the release branch, one for the development branch and one for the staging updates. It just takes too long and it's been gnawing at me for a little while. And uh, then the post continues with, well, Zen 2 to the rescue. These new CPUs can take ECC. There's actually an IPMI MOBO available, and they are fast as hell and cheap for what they get. So the new machines will be 3,900x-based servers plus a dual Xeon system that is already that they already has at home. And the 3,900x's can each do a full synth run with 24.5 hours, and the Xeon can do it in around 31 hours. So that's a much better time. Um, Monster will be retired, and the crazy thing about this, Monster burns a thousand watts going full uh, full steam, full bore. Uh, each of the 3900X servers burns 160 watts, and the Xeon burns 200 watts. So, in other words, we're replacing thousand watts with only 520 watts, and getting roughly six times the performance efficiency in the upgrade. This tells you just how much more power-efficient machines have become in the last nine years or so. Uh, so this upgrade will also allow us to do full builds for both releases and dev in roughly one week, uh, one day, sorry, uh, instead of seven days, and do it without interfering with staging work that might be happening at the same time. Uh, that's nice. And then uh, there's a section about future trends. So that is about Dragonfly BSD having reached a bit of crossroads. Um, with most of the SMP work uh, essentially completing across the entire system, the main project focus is now on supplying reliable binary ports for release and developer branches. Uh, DRM, the GPU support, and other UI elements to keep Dragonfly BSD relevant on workstations and continuing file system work on Hammer 2 to get multi-device and clustering going. Oh, exciting. Uh, John Marino uh, pioneered a synth system for D ports and continues to help out, but his focus is on Raven ports for now. Rimwiders 
Jacincas um, and Antonio Gete Jimenez, I guess, uh, have done a huge amount of work bringing deports back into operational form and getting the FreeBSD ports sync stuff working better. Um, then Dragonfly BSD is still using Synth and will probably remain on Synth for the foreseeable future, though there's always some discussion about best to move deports forward. It's an excellent build platform for us. And then uh, the next paragraph is about uh, Francois uh, Tijon. Uh, has done a ton of work taking DRM up to Linux 4.7.10, and this has worked very well for the Intel iGPUs. Uh, we're now fil- finally starting to dive into Linux's AMD GPU subsystem, which is much older in order uh, to modernize our AMD support, uh, which is still deficient, they write. Numerous other people have spent a considerable amount of time helping test GPU support and tracking down bugs. This work is ongoing. And, um, yeah. Right now, there's a section about Hammer 2. Right now, Hammer 2 makes for an excellent single-device file system extremely well, given that it supports writable snapshots and compression out of the box, uh, but it remains deficient when it comes to expendable storage, multiple devices, and clustering. Uh, this will be active work for me, but honestly, the AMD GPU support has to come first, so it's still going to be a long haul for Hammer 2. The rest of the post is basically, uh, there's a long list at the end uh, with the people uh, involved and, and thanking them. So it's a long list that you have to scroll through so you can see how many people were, were part in this and uh, were involved. Although there are a couple of duplicates here. Do you see that? There's there's three times Michael Neumann, Newman. Why isn't that uni- unikified? See, see that? There's a couple of du- duplicates in this one. Hmm. Yeah, I see it. There is. Well, they have to th- thank those people multiple times, I guess. Yeah, and so they close it with that it's hard to say how the future will develop. There are only three open source operating systems in the entire world that really pulled it together on having a complete modern SMP kernel. Linux, Dragonfly BSD, and FreeBSD. And that's it. Uh, we also have NetBSD and OpenBSD, and I kind of like to know what their plans are, because the future is clearly going not only multi-core, but many-core, uh, Matthew writes, uh, but for everything... But as I like to say, for SMP, there are only three at the moment. One can't dispute that Linux has nearly all the eyeballs and Dragonfly has very few, but open source tends to live on forever and algorithms never die. I think there's a place for all of these projects and there really aren't any alternatives if you want a sparkling clean system that doesn't have too many layers of abstraction. At the current juncture, uh, Dragonfly BSD is going, uh, doing well and there are no plans to slow down or stop. Yeah, and then that's basically the list of people so yeah, it seems like Dragonfly BSD uh, is not only getting more performance out of their build boxes, but also uh, saving up some uh, watts in the process. So our next story is from our friend Marius about resuming ZFS sends. Ah. He says, one of the amazing features of ZFS is the possibility to send an entire dataset from one place to another. So basically the ZFS send command can serialize the file system or block volume or any storage in ZFS into basically the stream format that you can store uh, and receive later or receive immediately, but it recreates the same file system on the other side. Uh, Since this mechanism is amazing to create backups of your ZFS-based machines, although there are some issues with the functionality for a long time when a user sent a big chunk of data. What if you want to do that over the network and your connection might disappear? What if your machine was rebooted as you are sending the snapshot? So up until a couple of years ago, if you were doing a ZFS send and it was interrupted, you had to start over at the, the last snapshot that was complete. 
So if you didn't have very many snapshots, or if you wrote data really fast, you might have the difference between two snapshots might be 500 gigabytes of data. Yes. And if your internet's not very fast, that takes a long time to send. And when it gets to 80% complete, and then your connection gets interrupted, or the Wi-Fi goes down, or you run out of battery, or whatever, um, that was really annoying and painful. Start over, yeah. Yeah. Uh, for a very long time, you didn't have any options. You had to send a snapshot from the beginning. Now, this limitation was already bad enough. However, another downside of this approach was that all the data which you had already sent was thrown away. So yeah, if you were up to 80% complete sending that snapshot, as soon as it was interrupted, ZFS would be like, oh, well, that's never going to finish. Let me just throw away that you know, 400 gigs of data. <laughs> uh, therefore, ZFS had to go uh, and send all this data over again. Uh, so imagine terabytes of data sent over the network, and you were almost done, and you stop, and then you have to actually delete all that data for no reason, and then resend it later. So uh, in this short post, I don't want to go over the whole ZFS snapshot infrastructure. If you think uh, that such a post would be useful, do leave a comment. He says, uh, now to get back to the point, uh, this infrastructure is used to clone the data sets. Some time ago, a new feature called resuming ZFS send, or resumable, was introduced. This means that if there was a problem transmitting a snapshot from one point to another, you could then resume it and pick up where you left off. So this means when it gets dis when it gets disconnected, it doesn't throw away the partial version, and it gives you some uh, a token you can use to resume. Yeah, much better. Uh, but the point is, you finally have this choice. So let's uh, look at an example. So here he does ZFS list and sees he has a test data set that's seven point two one gigabytes. Uh, as you probably know, you can use ZFS send and then ZFS receive to send and receive uh, the datasets. You can send the whole dataset or just a snapshot. Sending snapshot is much handier than sending the whole dataset, since you can do incrementals. Uh, first, when we send snapshots, the dataset hasn't, doesn't have to be unmounted. Uh, in the case when we uh, the send dataset, it has to. Uh, another advantage is that we can send data incrementally from one snap to another. So that way, you know, you can send daily snapshots of your laptop back to your NAS, um, and that way you don't have to resend all the data every time, only what's changed each day. Uh, so in the most simple example, you can see he does ZFS send of tank slash test to tank slash new test. Uh, and you let that run for a couple minutes, and then it's there. While that's happening, you can run ZFS list, and you can see that data set growing and growing. But if it gets interrupted, uh, then you look, and suddenly that whole data set has just disappeared because it didn't complete. Uh, the whole amount of data sent, which in this case was about a gigabyte, was thrown away by ZFS because ZFS didn't think we'd be able to resume this. So if you want to tell it that you want to reuse resume, uh, because it's a newer feature, you have to enable it. Um, when you do ZFS receive, you provide the dash S flag, uh, and that will make a resumable send. So this time, while we're sending and we cancel it, we see the data set stays and we get this 1.1 gigabytes of data. And if you do a ZFS get uh, on that data set, you'll see it has a property called resume token or receive resume token, which is this big long string. 
And encoded in that string is basically the name of the data set, the snapshot you're starting from, and how far through that snapshot you are. So now when you do ZFS send with dash T and that token, ZFS will pick up where it left off and send the rest of that replication stream. So when we do that, we can finish the replication and be done. Now, what if you decide you don't want to finish that replication? So you have gigabytes of data sitting there waiting to be resumed, and maybe you know, you've deleted the snapshot on the source or you just are never going to resume it. And then you want to do ZFS receive dash capital A, and then the name of the data set, and that will abort the resumable send and will delete the half replicated bit. Uh, so yeah, if the send process was interrupted and we asked ZFS not to clean up the data, we have to manually do the cleanup. Um, the resumable option uh, works only with individual data sets. So if you do a recursive send where you're sending multiple data sets, um, when you resume, it'll finish the one it was in the middle of, but it won't do all the later ones because you could have added or removed data sets in between and it can't it can't possibly know how to resume all that. Yeah, the tracking of those would uh, take extra work. Yeah. Uh, so ZFS resumable send is very interesting and uh, straightforward, but can save you a lot of time and bandwidth. Oh yeah, a lot of people were thankful to have that feature. Yes, I remember when I was replicating the um, FreeNAS downloads to like Australia and Singapore, uh, which are very far away, and that data set is over 500 gigs. Uh, and more, most importantly there, bandwidth in Australia is expensive. Yeah. It's... So sending 400 of the 500 gigs, uh, being charged, you know, 10 cents a gig for it. Uh, so, you know, now you're at like, you spent $4 and then it was for nothing. And you have to send it all over again and again. And it just seems like it'll never complete. Whereas with the resume, it was able to pick up where it left off and uh, work very nicely. Saving you the money, yeah. Yes. <laughs> very nice, yeah. So that's um, another cool article from Marius' blog. Um, maybe if you have time, Marius, you could actually give us more details about how ZFS Send works internally or some other ZFS features that would be uh, always nice to cover in a future show. Yeah, um, if you are interested in that, one of the cool tools that comes with ZFS is ZStreamDump. If you do a ZFS send and instead of receiving it, pipe it into that tool, it will give you a more human readable version of what it's sending. And then as you add more and more dash V's for verbose, it will give you more and more information until you can't possibly read it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what the developers originally used or are still using uh, for debugging streams. Yes, I, I have a bunch of patches for it that I'm in the middle of upstreaming that provide more interesting statistics at the end of the send and so on. Yeah, if you um, just make a snapshot of a text file, and then change the text file, do another snapshot, then if you do the stream dump between the two, then you can see what changed in the text file in this, this dump output. All right, now it's time for our news roundup this week. Uh, we have found something interesting for the people who are into visualizations because we have real-time bandwidth terminal graph visualizations, apparently, uh, over at datasram.org. We covered them a couple of times. They have some interesting articles. And this time they have 
The real-time bandwidth terminal graph visualizations, uh, if for some reason you want to visualize your bandwidth traffic on a terminal, in or out, uh, in a terminal with a nice graph, here's a small script to do so, involving TTY plot, a nice software making graphics in a terminal. Graphics in like ASCII pictures, you know, remember those? Um, the following will work on OpenBSD. You can install TTY plot package underscore add TTY plot as root. Uh, TGY plot package appeared uh, in OpenBSD 6.5. And for Linux, there's also a TGY plot. Well, this website is pretty much for all the Unixes or <laughs> operating systems out there. It's not just um, <laughs> for Linux. Uh, yeah, so the website contains tons of examples. That's TGY, uh, uh, yeah, TGY plot on github.com. And they have a nice um, example. It's, it reminds me a little bit of... Um, uh, Ministat, the Ministat output a little bit? A little bit. Um, so I use a similar tool called Enload that does a similar thing, but can also do, um, it, it does it per interface. Mm -hmm. uh, but this tool also looks quite useful. Um, so yeah, they describe a little bit how to use the command. Um, like they will have a trunk zero uh, with inbound traffic as the interface to monitor. And there, at the end of the article, is a command to display both the in and out traffic at the same time. And they also have instructions for customizing uh, as you need. Ah, okay. So I see. So TTY plot is a generic tool for graphing. And then they're using netstat and some awk to make the right format to then plot it. That's cool. Uh, but you might want to check out Enload, which is also available on all the Unix type operating systems. It's a lot less to type. You just do enload the interface name. <laughs> less arcing in between. So yeah, you, with TTY plot, you can not just plot network bandwidth, but also like, uh, I don't know, numbers, text files, anything that might be worth plotting. Yeah, anything. That's very useful. I'm going to have to bookmark that. Mm -hmm. uh, is that also in uh, FreeBSD parts? I would imagine so. It's on GitHub, so it could easily be. <laughs> Someone who has time to port something, there is always another software out there that could be part of the ports collection. Or, um, well, I see, it doesn't seem so. Okay. We have a wanted ports page on the FreeBSD wiki that we can happily edit and <laughs> people will pick it up. All right. Yeah. So check it out and um, then start visualizing your bandwidth. Uh, in another uh, similar term, we have um, the old thing called Telnet. Uh, there's a blog from or blog post from Ted Unangst um, called "Fixing Telnet Fixes." Remember Telnet? You shouldn't use. Yep. Uh, so they say there's a FreeBSD commit to Telnet to fix a couple of SN printf buffer overflows. It's received a bit of attention from various reasons. You know, the fact that there's Telnet in 2019. Uh, so I thought I'd take a look and hear a few random observations. Uh, here are three lines after the patch where they created unsigned integer called bufflen, which is the length of the buffer plus the length of the control code plus one. And so then they make a memory buffer um, that big and then print that those two strings concatenated together into it. And they note some interesting observations about it. Number one, the first line is intended or indented with spaces of all the others use tabs which is weird. The correct type for string length is size t, not unsigned int. Uh, the size of character is always one. There's no need to multiply it by the buff length. Uh, if you do need to multiply by a size, 
that that's an unsafe pattern, you should use C alloc or something similar, or like realloc array used in OpenBSD. Uh, return value of malloc doesn't need to be cast. Uh, in fact, it should not be, unless you disguise some warnings you might get. Uh, and the return value of malloc is not checked for null in case memory allocation fails. And uh, there's no reason to cast the character pointer variable to a character pointer uh, when passing it to smprintf if uh, it's already that type. And if it weren't, then what were you doing in the first place? And then the whole operation could probably be simplified by just using asprintf, which will do the allocation automatically for the right size. I say, although unlikely and possibly impossible here, uh, adding the two source lengths together can overflow, resulting in truncation, uh, which would go unchecked in that smprintf call, whereas sn or sorry, asprintf avoids this uh, particular failure case. It turns out that the Telnet client is still useful. Uh, you know, I'm glad that we're not spending a lot of time on the Telnet server. Yeah. The Telnet client is still useful. Although I admit that most of my use of it is actually abuse of it, using it for things that aren't necessarily Telnet. <laughs> Yay for finger memory, eh? A lot of things can be done with Netcat nowadays that uh, is a good replacement for Telnet. Okay, yeah. So um, speaking of OpenBSD, since uh, Ted Unix is an OpenBSD developer, um, we found a chapter from the FBI's history with OpenBSD and an OpenSSH vulnerability. Uh, this originally came in as a tweet, I guess. Uh, yep. So the tweet goes, uh, earlier this year, I FOA FYA it, <laughs> the FBI, for details on allegations of backdoor installed in the IPsec stack in 2010, originally discussed by OpenBSD devs, and there's a link to the mailing list post. Uh, today, uh, I got an interesting but unexpected responsive record and uploaded that. Of course, um, as you might think, there are a lot of uh, things blacked out. There's a link to the document or to the reply. Yeah, so this is based on the Freedom of Information Act. And here's the original um, request uh, to whom it may concern, blah, blah. Pursuant of the Freedom of Information Act, I hereby request the following records. And um, can I see that? Ah, yes, there's the scan of the reply. No, it's not, it's not actually not a scan. Oh, oh, it is a scan, yeah. So it has all the cool stuff like FBI logo. But there's a bunch here where they're talking about uh, a routine message from the FBI Chicago field office being sent to uh, Australia and Canada to ask for any additional information they might have. So like the, the, the cross uh, information, uh, they pull all that together to have that as the full reply, I guess, or well, full reply. So looking at the heavily redacted bits here, it starts off, the concurrent version system, CVS, for OpenBSD operating system has been compromised as a result, blacked out. An OpenSSH exploit, blacked out, has been discovered. <laughs> um, this seems to be 2002. Okay, so that's quite a while ago. It says OpenBSD, yeah, OpenBSD was compromised through the internet host cvs.openbsd.org or ftp.openbsd.org, both located in Canada, blank claimed on the IRC channel, blank which he connects to from the internet hosts in Australia to have committed the hack. And then a bunch of blanked out stuff. 
I mean, besides the blanked out parts, it's interesting to see the like the, the form they use or the, the kind of structure of the document, like how much they, it's very formal. It's very, of course, it's a very, very much a, a bureau, but uh, it's kind of interesting how they collect that information and present that internally, even though we see all the uh, the interesting bits that are blacked out, but kind of the, the, the structure is, is, is interesting to me, like how they uh, stored all that or, provide these records for themselves. But it looks like the only thing they have here is the FBI's investigation into when uh, a host at OpenBSD was compromised uh, back in 2002. Basically, the FBI trying to find out who did the hacking. Ah, yes, yeah. And uh, was there any conclusions or follow-up to that? No, it seems like the only file that we got access to was the FBI's request to uh, Australia and Canada for more information. And I think they wanted them to interview people. It's a little hard to tell with all the redactions. Mm, yeah, it's the interesting bits are missing, so it's hard to guess what they were after. Um, ah, yes, and then it's the, the closing letters. Uh, two pages were reviewed and three pages are being released. Ah, yeah, with some uh, legal... Uh, advisement at the end enclosures yes uh so the the problem back in 2002 is public information uh so you know nothing surprising yeah and i guess openbsd folks have uh put enough scrutiny on that code in question or have rewritten it by now three times you know over the last almost 20 years sure yeah <laughs> so i guess the exploit is uh that is not available anymore or not possible. Um, but who knows what else is lurking. Yeah, I don't think it's been possible since 2002, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it gave an interesting insight to me, at least, into you know how these records are stored and how such a file might look like, something that you won't see every day. Yeah, although I do question a little bit why some of it was redacted, although some of that might actually be to protect the identities. Mm, for people, of people who or, spoke right. to the FBI or were interviewed or whatever. You don't want to uh, cause people in OpenBSD consternation by saying that they talked to the government or something. Yeah, quite true. All right, here are our Beastie Bits this week. Uh, we have the first, uh, second edition. Well, that sounded wrong. No, it's Pseudomastery, second edition, open for tech reviews. I wanted to say it's the the first part of the second edition, but that didn't <laughs> got together too well. So this is over at Michael Lucas's blog, and he writes that he finished the first draft of the new pseudo mastery last night and spent today polishing up for tech review. Uh, that's from mid July, so that's already done. Uh, if you want to do a tech review, this is your chance. Send an email to mwlucas at uh, michaelwlucas.com telling me what you want to review, and you won't make the manuscript possible. No, public. Yeah, uh, yeah, public. <laughs> uh, he needs all reviews back by August 5th, so that's by next week this time uh, this episode comes out. Uh, this gives me time, if everything goes well, to have the book in print for VBSDCon, which is the first week of September. Um, assuming they accept my proposal, uh, that is. Um, s- side note, we did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's 
coming up in a later story in the show. <laughs> yeah, stay tuned. Uh, as a side effect of that, he'll be closing both the print sponsorships and ebook sponsorships in the next 24 hours. So that's already done. Um, but today, uh, in this one, uh, he'll be posting about gelato. Ah, yeah, as he usually does. So yeah, um, that seems like a new book coming out very, very soon with updates in the pseudo area. And of course, we can't wait to get our hands on that. Next up, we have a reminder. Uh, the FreeBSD Journal is now free to everyone. And if you check out the latest edition that came out, the, the May-June edition, uh, and it's focusing on makers and do-it-yourself projects, including the BeagleBone Black, Raspberry Pi, and some others. Uh, if you're ready to get your hands dirty, dive right in. The FreeBSD Journal is free to readers online with the links uh, from the FreeBSD Foundation's website. Yeah, just grab it and read it. Stories in this version include introduction to hardware hacking on FreeBSD. If you're really interested in that, uh, Tom will also be teaching it as a tutorial uh, with the hardware included um, at EuroBSDCon in September. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. I guess a lot of people signed up. Uh, then they also talk about how to run a media server on a not a Raspberry Pi, but other ARM devices. Uh, then somebody is talking about running a Singa 2 on a Raspberry Pi 3. Yeah, some crazy guy who's running that for a number of months now, stable. Then they also have a letter from the foundation, we get letters column from Michael Lucas, which is always humorous, the conference report, a new Faces of FreeBSD article, the SVN update, and the upcoming event calendar. Yeah, so these are regular columns that are uh, in each episode, or in episode, in each uh, issue, but each issue has a main theme that um, authors are writing about. And um, yeah, if you are interested in writing for the journal, then get in touch. They're always looking for authors. Uh, we're also looking for uh, people who could review books, and that will also be then an, an article in an upcoming uh, issue. And uh, the July-August issue will probably be out in a couple of weeks. Uh, oh, yeah, I missed the last um, editorial board meeting, uh, but I think we're in a good shape to uh, give it to you soon. Uh, we'll make an announcement uh, on the journal's uh, Twitter uh, account or on the foundation's website when that is happening. What would it be about is already there, right? Usually we plan at BSDCAN the next year's editorial, so the main topics are there, so we can publish those already, but we cannot publish yet what will be in each, each issue. Uh, since we have to hunt down writers. The plan for the July-August issue is for it to be about containerization. So jails and sense. Yeah, things of that nature. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely have a nice issue coming up again. Yep. And then we have uh, in the roundup here a post from OpenBSD and NetBSD machines at the Open Source Conference 2019 in Nagoya. The Japanese NetBSD user group and the Nagoya BSD user groups uh, held booths at the Open Source Conference uh, earlier in July, and they have uh, lots of pictures. Ah, yes, from cool machines, old and new. Yes, like this table literally has almost no blank space on it. Uh, the little bits that are not covered in hardware are covered in run BSD stickers. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it should be. Ah, yes. Yeah, they have uh, a Luna 88K running OpenBSD, lots of other cool stickers, and just heaps of interesting hardware. Oh, yes, that reminds me of AsiaBSDCon. They always have a table there with cool hardware mm -hmm. that you normally don't see. 
They also had a uh, Raspberry Pi 3 running FreeBSD, doing something interesting that I can't read in Japanese. Mm, yeah, that's all lost. Uh, they had a Ryzen system running NetBSD, some tablets running NetBSD, uh, a Pinebook running NetBSD, a uh, bunch of other stuff, and uh, an official NetBSD tourist guide. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Lots of interesting stuff. So if you're interested in seeing some of the pictures of that uh, fun hardware you often can't get anywhere but in Japan, don't they also have uh, a little Mastodon client running on, a, on the, Luna tw- the Luna 88K and such? It's quite interesting. Um, ah, so the tourist guide seems to have stuff from the uh, mailing list with this, like... Uh, all the disk images and so on that were used for the different machines. So if you saw something interesting you wanted to build yourself, the recipes are mostly there as well. Oh, so you can run it on your own if you have the hardware. So next up is something for the gamers out there. We have, like we mentioned in an earlier episode, uh, Wine now running well enough on FreeBSD 12.0 that it allows gaming. And here's a YouTube video that shows that. Yes, over the 24 minutes, they appear to play at least... 10 different games <laughs> that I recognize. Yeah, I saw a couple of tweets. There's one here with the ship. Yeah, I'm not sure what that one is. And then I see some Counter-Strike. Uh, this one looks like Call of Duty. Mm-hmm. Um, some RPGs. I'm not even sure what that one is. Uh, some kind of farm simulator. <laughs> Yeah, well, it works, so just farm away. <laughs> uh, golf, something that looks like Grand Theft Auto, but in German, I think. Um, huh. Of all languages. This looks almost like it's um, Left for Dead. Might be, actually. Oh, that's not too old. I recognize some of these games, but not all of them. There's some... That game just got Stickman in it. Uh, Skyrim... Uh, some puzzle games, a uh, Lego game of some kind, <laughs> lots of other games. But there's plenty of choice of, of genres, so it's not just uh, mm-hmm. uh, Diablo or, or a real-time strategy. So, yeah, it's working now, so you might be a bit late to the, to the game, <laughs> literally, but it's there, it works. So if you have some free time, then by all means... Do gaming on FreeBSD. And then we have something from PackageSourceCon uh, 2019. Introduction to the Structure and Interpretation of TNF, the NetBSD Foundation. Yes, this is from uh, Thomas Klausner, uh, who's been a NetBSD and PackageSource developer for 19 years. Over time, he's been part of almost every committee in NetBSD. He's part of the PackageSource PMC, which is the Project Management Committee which solves technical and administrative issues with package source and handles creating the branches. Uh, there's package-bug-handler, which uh, maintains the NATS instance they use to track uh, problem reports and maintainers in package source. The package source security group, which tracks security issues for packages and informs maintainers about them and gets the fixes pushed and so on. The package source WIP, uh, which is a work in progress, which is where they work on building the next snapshot and testing packages and 
the membership executive uh, committee, which handles all NetBSD membership issues, like adding or removing developers, cleaning up people who uh, are inactive, and so on. The NetBSD board, uh, which is the legal and financial oversight of the NetBSD foundation, and deals with technical issues and so on. Many other teams, including core, admins, finance exec, uh, release engineering, release engineering package source, Triple W, Concom, and uh, probably others that he forgot about. Well, that's an interesting insight. I like the uh, the slide tool he was using for this. It's quite interesting. Yeah, I like this uh, cube uh, where each slide is a, a side of the cube. It almost looks like. And lastly, we have uh, VBSDCon. Uh, the list of speakers has been announced. It's here somewhere. There it is. <laughs> it's on the, the speakers. Yeah, there's no schedule yet, but um, it's coming. There's a draft schedule. It's just not finalized yet. Okay. But it's basically these people in an order. It doesn't really matter, does they, it? They, they talk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the keynotes uh, will be Paul Vixie talking about DNS over HTTPS and Colin Percival talking about 23 years of software side channel attacks against processors, like the Meltdown Inspector type stuff. Um, then the main talks will include John Baldwin talking about uh, doing TLS encryption in the kernel, uh, like how Netflix does it. Uh, Connor Beh will talk about FreeBSD at work, building network and storage infrastructure using PFSense and FreeNAS. Uh, Michael Dexter will talk about ZFS performance across six different operating systems. So looking at the open ZFS code running on Linux, NetBSD, FreeBSD, Illumos, uh, Windows, and OS X. Uh, Dave Fillard will talk about transitioning from a FreeNAS user to being a FreeBSD user uh, and, you know, becoming more and more technical, basically. Um, I'm going to give my uh, Explain Like I'm 5 how ZFS caching works talk. Oh, yeah, from FOSDEM. And uh, since that's not ever actually been done at a BSD conference yet. <laughs> uh, Michael Lucas, as we mentioned before, will give his 20 years in jails uh, talking about FreeBSD jails then and now. Uh, Kurt Mosjek will talk about the care and feeding of OpenBSD porters uh, and, in general, growing the team of people that keep all the third-party software working on our favorite operating systems. Aaron Poffenberger will talk about his Road Warrior disaster recovery system, how to secure, synchronize, and back up your laptop so that if it gets damaged, lost, stolen, or seized, uh, you'll be able to continue your work and not lose your information. Benedict Reuscheling. Oh, that guy. Whoever that is. Um, we'll be replacing an Oracle database with FreeBSD, OpenZFS, and Postgres. Uh, and Sean Webb will give the state of the hardened union. And there is also a kind of a workshop-y thing. And we're not entirely sure how that's going to work on the schedule yet. Uh, but we'll actually be, I think, a three-hour thing going through how to actually port software to OpenBSD. That seems like something for everyone. And uh, yeah, this is happening in the Hyatt Regency Reston and uh, yeah, Washington. And yeah, VeriSign is uh, organizing that or helping to organize. Uh, um, there is also a couple of people involved, not just you with the um, uh, paper selection program committee. Uh, there's um, usual suspects, Dan Langill, Ryan Steinmetz, and Mark Felder in the organizing committee. Yeah, there's a the organizing committee that actually run the conference, and then the program committee was uh, them plus myself, 
Pamela Mosjek and um, Michael Shirk. Okay. So, yeah, it's not just a single person, which is always good. There's some uh, help. And, yeah, we look forward to seeing you at VBSDCon. There is also a uh, one-day hackathon on the 5th, I think, if I'm not mistaken. And that's pretty much open, not just for FreeBSD developers. It, it says invite only on the registration page. Oh, really? Yes. Okay, well, the details are on the website. If that should be changed, somebody needs to tell Dan. Anyway, um, you can register now. If you register before August 15th, you get $25 off the cost. So register now, and it will be cheaper. Early birds, yeah. There's also a link for uh, the group rate at the hotel. Yeah, so you can stay at the hotel where the conference is and can uh, stay and talk to people that are at the conference longer without having to rush out to catch a bus or something to another hotel. Okay, that's very exciting. And again, uh, VBSDCon is only every other year. It's it's alternating with MeetBSD. Yes. So if you're on the East Coast, this is the only chance you're going to have until 2021 to come out to a local conference. So, you know, make the effort. <laughs> yeah. All right. Now it's time for our feedback and questions this week. And uh, as always, we ask you to send us feedback at, uh, well, feedback at bsdnow.tv. Uh, anything that you that's on your mind in the BSD area, questions, comments, any uh, interesting stories that you found. And um, the questions will be put into that section. And of course, we answer them as well. So the first one is from Pat uh, about NiceBug August 7th. Ah, this is uh, an announcement here. Uh, that's a video on OpenBSD. Uh, Andre Buschwechsler, Buschwechsler, almost a tongue twister there. Um, uh, ah, there's the NiceBug website, which has more information. That's easier, I guess. And that's on August 7th. So by the time you watch this episode, uh, or it comes out, it's uh, just another week away. And yeah, the abstract for that is Andrew selects his video production software based on free licensing, portability, ease of installation, compatibility with OpenBSD, usability, and whether it accomplishes whether he, uh, whatever he wants to do. Uh, videos are consequently produced on OpenBSD with Vim, Make, FFmpeg, Make, Verge, MPV, Sox, Glothoggle, Orcat, BC, Fossil, a lot of other software, and custom Unix-style utilities. Competence with such portable video editing software has come in handy when needing to use GNU Linux and Windows. Andrew will touch on many parts of the video production process, including planning, recording, editing video streams, editing audio streams, composition of subtitles, translation of subtitles, encoding, publishing, and version control. Oh, that's interesting for the people who also want to do that on Unix and learn about the tools and what's involved. Yeah, so don't miss that. And um, I guess the nice bug ones are not just streamed, but also recorded. There's live streaming via um, Scalington, but also the recordings which they'll post after. Okay, thank you, Pat, for that. Um, if you send us something about a BSD user group meeting or something that's coming up, remember to send this um, not just the week before our next recording, because by that time the recording comes out, we're kind of uh, either too late already or... It's just a few days away, and a couple of people want to uh, plan this out a little bit longer. So send this early enough. Yeah, so on top of the fact that sometimes it takes us a while to get to the feedback, uh, and that sometimes we record a week ahead of time to cover conferences and stuff, which there are a lot of coming up, um, we also have the problem that 
you know, people don't necessarily watch the show the day it comes out. So yes, the sooner you can tell us about your event, the better, and we will get it in the show. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Uh, now that this is out the door, uh, Tyler is next uh, with SSH keys versus passwords. Okay. Tyler writes, question. In your opinion, is using a really long random password to log into a server via SSH and not using key authentication a good idea? I have an OpenBSD server with a pretty good SSH guard policy. My username is hard to guess and all other logins are disallowed. Am I pretty safe or should I just uh, set up keys? So my reply is use keys. I still allow passwords in my use cases in a couple of places because sometimes I'm on a machine that doesn't have my key. Yes, yeah, some kiosk systems or... There's always at least at least one account somewhere that I can get into with just a long password because, you know, locking yourself out isn't a great solution either. Um, sometimes the best is actually to do some kind of two-factor, um, like with the Duo security module, where you can get uh, a phone call or something to to verify the login before it finishes. I have to do that with... Uh, one of the VPNs I used at a customer, after I enter my username and password, it then asks for a second password where I type the word phone and then my phone rings and I have to answer it and press a certain key uh, to verify that it's actually me trying to log in. Um, or another one where you use Google Authenticator. So in addition to your password or key or whatever you're using, you also have to put in a temporary code. Yeah, I think you're pretty good already on the security. At least you're thinking about it and don't just uh, run the SSH server without um, fiddling some of the configs or doing some crazy stuff like, oh, let's just move the SSH port to another port so maybe no one will find out. They will. They just find out that it's not on port 22 anymore, but on, I don't know, 2222. Um, so that's not a help. But uh, with SSH guard and I think you should be fine, depending on whether that system is being scanned continuously since it's on the internet, or if it's just an internet server that should also be um, less likely to be attacked. All right, yeah, so that's uh, Tyler with SSH. And last but not least is Lars with Tor Talk. So Lars found, uh, or writes to us, Hi, Alan, Benedict, and JT. The string BSD now turns up in this message in the Tor Talk archives. Oh, should I be worried? Yes, basically they're complaining about one of the Tor nodes happened to have BSD now in the name. It's mostly likely, or most likely because we used to have a tutorial on our website, or technically it's still on the old website, but yes, we had a tutorial on how to set up a Tor relay, uh, and the example happened to call the relay BSD now. So I think there, over the years there have been, I think, a hundred different uh, Tor nodes that happen to have BSD now in the name somewhere. Definitely has nothing to do with me personally, but yes. Okay, so I guess people followed that tutorial a little bit too much to the point and didn't think of replacing some of the strings that uh, you put in there as examples. In particular, this is someone saying that the Tor exit relay BSD now 2016 is just rerouting traffic back into the Tor network rather than actually exiting it to the internet. So it uses other exits instead of being an actual exit. This allows it to inspect traffic without having to deal with abuse complaints. Uh, I have no evidence that this exit is actually inspecting traffic. They basically reported it to the bad relay list. Okay, so it's kind of blocked or blacklisted. It's, it has nothing to do with us. It's just um, someone 
having used our tutorial and was careless, I guess. All right, but thanks for the info. Uh, we'll try to make sure that if you have, since in the, now we have tutorials that are from people's blogs, then um, it's less likely that this will happen again. But it's less of a problem, I guess, since it's blacklisted. All right, that pretty much covers uh, this week's episode. Thank you for listening in and see you next week.